Father, there really is something so special about this time of year. You can feel it in the air. You can see it on people's faces. You see it in kindness and generosity. The human heart is touched as it considers the grace of God given in Jesus Christ, a Savior for sinners. We, re- we remark, too, just how incredible it is that power is deployed in such meekness. The means by which he would save mankind and the importance of what is represented there in that person and that sacrifice, and yet they come gently as a baby. Uh, Lord, that's an amazing thing. It's not the way I would have drawn it up. But you are good, you are wise, and we honor you for planning a way of salvation for us. Lord, teach us now from your word. May we know you better and love you more as we see how you've revealed yourself in your redemptive plan. Guide us as we study now together in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41, uh, this is part two of a message I started last week. And, um, and in fact, we're going to be finishing the book of Isaiah in just a couple of weeks, amazingly. And uh, I know many of you will then wonder, what's next? We will be heading to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John after that. A little book, or little books. It will be nice to just take a few verses and kind of just linger in them for a while instead of trying to grasp eight chapters and bring that home on a Sunday morning. So I'm looking forward to the, uh, the adjustment there. Last week's message really focused on a key point, and this this week just continues that point, which is that we can trust God, not because we're so trusting, but because our God is so trustworthy. And last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 40, and we gleaned that God's people could be comforted knowing that he will deliver them. We've seen this over and over again from God on behalf of his people. In Isaiah, the assurance given is that our Judean exiles, that God has a plan of deliverance for them. We saw that in the words, your years of hard service are over. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. He is taking them out. And so this initial theme, which is meant for Judah, is then picked up centuries later in John the Baptist as he proclaims a greater deliverance than just from the bondage of Babylonian captivity, but a deliverance for mankind from the bondage of sin. And then we moved on and we saw that God's people should be confident because our God himself is trustworthy. And we looked first at his attributes, that is, who he is. Isaiah took us on a kind of a tour of God's attributes, or at least some of them. And he really reaffirmed the incomparability of our God to idols, to pagans, pagan nations, and we see his holiness, the word kadash, that he is like no other. And then he highlights his power, particularly the creative power of God, that he made all of this world and that he made it for himself. But he doesn't just hold that power in and to himself, but in fact, he tenderly leads those that he loves. His his power is given in the benevolent care of his people. In fact, he gives power to the weak, and for those who are weary, he renews their strength, those who hope in the Lord. 
But there's still a problem. We still need something else here, and that is this. We need proof. These are just assertions. Where's the evidence? Anybody can make a claim or an assertion, and we might not be sure if we believe them until they prove it. Put some evidence on the table, please. In other words, I could stand up here and say, listen, Bethel Church, there's been a really, there's been a great misunderstanding among the church. The reality of things is, I I love cats. I love them. I can't get enough of them. And you'd be sitting there and you'd be saying, prove it. Show us a picture of your cat or the cats you hang out with. Show us pictures of the carpeted playground in your living room. Show us pictures of all the stinky, shiny little toys that you've adopted into your life to keep this cat happy. Prove it. We're going to need some evidence to believe that your saying you love cats is not just that you think they're delicious or would make a nice kebab or something like that. (laughs) Right? We want to see evidence for claims. Evidence in one's life and actions. You say God is trustworthy. Show me. Show me that he is. And so today, as we go, we continue through Isaiah's argument, we see that evidence is produced to confirm that he is trustworthy. That is, we can trust God not only because of who he is, uh, we can also trust God because of what he has done. And so that's our, our point this morning where we pick up here. We can trust God because of his actions, what he has done. There's case law, there's precedent of his trustworthiness. Evidence, not just empty assertions. So look at with me in chapter uh, 41. And as Isaiah picks up here in verse 1, he brings in some courtroom language. He's daring the nations as he calls them into the courtroom. He sort of dares them, go ahead, make a case against what I'm saying here. Uh, 41 verse 1. Be silent before me, you islands. This is just a reference to kind of all of the worldwide places, everything in the further, furthest parts of the known world. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together in the place of judgment. Okay, These initial, this initial approach here is basically a taunt. If you remember the words to Job, God, when he was about ready to correct Job's thinking, and he says, brace yourself like a man. I'm about to tell you. This is the same kind of voicing here. Let the nations renew their strength. Go ahead, collect yourselves. Bring what you got. Come into this room, this place of judgment. And then he moves on from there in verse two. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them, and with the last, I am he. All right, something to explain here. First of all, there's this phrase, one stirred up from the east. What in the world is going on here? This is really uh, critical and and pivotal to understanding this this section. This is a reference to God's activation of a warrior from the east, and it is, in fact, the Persian king Cyrus. 
Cyrus is mentioned here uh, kind of generically, but specifically later on, he'll be named. And again, this is amazing because it's 100 years before the event occurs. And this figure will actually be named in advance of his carrying out his task. You can actually read about his actions in Ezra chapter 1, the first four verses, as he comes in and conquers Babylon and issues a decree to release the people of Israel that they would return home and rebuild the temple. It's fascinating. It's also interesting here because he is referred to calling him in righteousness to his service. Now, what's important is that the man himself is not righteous. Cyrus is not a righteous man. Uh, He's a pagan worshiper. But God assigns even to this pagan king a righteous task. And that just reminds us that God uses both good and evil as he accomplishes his purposes. Uh, And and this made me recall in my own mind a passage uh, from Isaiah all the way back in chapter 10, if you remember this. It was in reference to Assyria at the time. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Does the saw boast against the one who uses it as if the rod were to wield the person who lifts it up or a club brandish the one who is not wood? In other words, who gets the credit for this? The tool doesn't get the credit, but the user. God is the one to be honored for using even a pagan king like Cyrus to accomplish his righteous purposes. So Cyrus is but a tool in God's hand, an axe by which the wielding power of God does his work. So God is trustworthy, not only because of his attributes, but also because of his actions. And this is presented as exhibit A. This one will be raised up to accomplish my purposes and release my exiles. But then there's a second piece of evidence, exhibit B. And this time, Isaiah goes back into their history, into their memory to demonstrate God's trustworthy actions before. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And here we're reminded that it is not in our qualifications or in our merit that any of us is chosen to be part of the family of God. God's sovereign choice is what is at work, that we are chosen to be his and redeemed. And God makes it very plain here. I chose you, I brought you into the land to be my people. And we might even say that this is not just a one-time kind of thing, but in fact, God continues to choose us because he is with us steadily. It's an ongoing activity. And the fact that God has sovereignly chosen those to be his own, uh, that he brings to himself, I think ought to produce Incredible security in the life of his followers. In other words, we didn't earn our way in, so we can't fail our way out. We didn't choose our way in, we won't choose our way out. God 
did not inherit us as an unwanted leftover from some previous administration. He chose us as his own. God chooses those who are his according to his good pleasure, not our good nature. We're his by choice, by his gracious and sovereign choice. And for the imperfect, sinning, stumbling, frail, faltering Christian, this is good news. Amen? I love the way A.W. Tozer has said it. How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. So the argument is advanced here. Our, our God is trustworthy. Why? Because of his attributes, who he is, and because of his actions, because of what he has done, which leads us to the next point. Therefore, we can trust him in what he will do. As we move on to chapter 41, verse 10. And as we see these next set of verses, 10 through 29, look how the voicing changes. You can see that in the past it was, it was about who I am. We can see about what he has done. And now the voicing changes to the things that I will do. You can see the word will do just peppered all the way down this line here. So we'll start in verse 10 and roll through here. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Now, I got to pause there. I, I'm not 100% sure if that's a compliment or a tender, you know. I think if I called my wife, you little worm, it's not going to go over well, but I almost think that's the way it's used here. Anyways, just something to study. Uh, you worm, Jacob, little Israel, do not fear. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, sharp, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia and myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. And so see, here we see this, the promise not only of deliverance, but also of 
protection and great provision and God's hand at work in virtually every aspect of their life. And also that the world would see that God did this, not our little worm, but the power of Almighty God. So we can trust God not only because we're, not because we're so good at trusting, but because he is trustworthy by his actions, his attributes. Therefore, we can trust his promises. I think right here is a key point of application for us as, as Christians today. And that's this. We need to be very good at recalling and rehearsing to ourselves the ways that God has been faithful to us in the past in order to strengthen our present and our future faith. Recalling and rehearsing God's faithfulness. In other words, we need to remember that it was he who called us into a saving knowledge of himself by his grace and mercy, not our merits. We may need to remember that person that God used, the person who sat with us and proclaimed the gospel to us and prayed with us and walked out those early days of our faith with us and loved us even though we were unlovely. I was thinking about this this past week and the, the key people that God has placed in my life. And I'm just gonna personally run through them for you this morning as a, as a way of showing what I, I'd like to encourage you to do in your own life. The first, the first one I see is my dad, Sam Johns, who broke the cycle of alcoholism and abuse in our family. And when he prayed to receive Christ, he walked faithfully with God. He got out of the military he joined a missions organization called the Navigators. And my, God, my dad was a good man to lead our home. And he prayed with me in the hallway to receive Christ. I'm thankful for my dad and God's work in his life. And then there's Joel Sutton, my youth pastor, junior high and high school. And he kept pulling me into youth group, even though I didn't want to go. And he eventually saw some leadership uh, capability in me and asked me to help out serving in some leadership roles. Then there was Dale Hansen, my high school coach. He took a small group of young men and he, well, I'll say young boys, and he helped us become men. And he got in our face on all kinds of things and loved us. My senior year, he, he was transferred uh, back east and he loved us so much that when we graduated, he flew all the way home to be at our graduation across the country. Then there was Rob Lone. He was a resident director at Biola University and he was one that God used to teach me how to have a relationship with Jesus, not just to possess knowledge about him. Still in touch with him. Then there was John Schubert, my first boss in youth ministry, who taught me how to take these things and to try to deliver them for a youth ministry. And then God brought me to Fairbanks, Alaska, and I got to learn the pastoral craft under Paul Holmes and Keith Payne, two men who have mentored me and invested in me. And I look back over my life, I go, praise God. Look at these men that he has put in my life and many others. See, I need to call this up at times and say, God has been faithful to me. He did not let me go the ways that I might have gone otherwise, but he put people in my life, key times and key places to help draw me to himself. So you may need to recall that. You may need to remember the time that God ministered to you through answered prayer or that time that you sat down and that passage of scripture just burned off the page in your mind. God was speaking to you clearly through his word. Or you may need to remember that time 
God provided the job or that gift or that windfall at just the right time to meet your need. A couple years back, I was in Labrie, uh, this, this Christian fellowship in, outside of Boston for about 10 days. And one of the lecturers there was an, an archivist. I want to say archivalist, but the right word is archivist uh, for the city of Boston. And her job was to help the city capture its memory and its, its story as a way of preserving it for the community. And she was lecturing in this Christian fellowship about the importance of memory. And then she kind of beautifully turned the page to show that this is important for Christians too. And she turned to Deuteronomy and said, look at how many times in Deuteronomy the word says, remember, remember, remember. Recall this or build this monument so that you will know, so that you can teach your children. My friends, my pastoral encouragement to you is this. Build a spiritual archive of memory so that you can argue with your own weary soul on the day of trouble and you can teach your kids about God's faithfulness to you in the past. So having laid out the evidence for his trustworthiness, Isaiah now speaks kind of beyond Judah's immediate experience and their immediate deliverance, and he speaks of a greater and fuller and more glorious deliverance to come. Uh, Chapter 42, we'll start at verse 1 here. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So this next point that we have here, God's people are encouraged because a greater servant, a greater servant is given. And what we find here are actually the first of four what are called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And I meant to list them for you in your notes, and I forgot to go back to that, so maybe next week you'll get them. And there are a lot of questions kind of about the identity. Who is this servant that's being spoken of here? Uh, It's a little vague. It's a little confusing. And to sort of complicate matters, the word servant is used in reference to many different subjects in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah refers to himself as a servant. Uh, Cyrus, the pagan king, is referred to as the servant of God. Israel itself is referred to as a servant. And so we're kind of left to wonder, okay, what servant do we have in mind here? But it seems that there is another servant in view, one of a different kind and one of a different quality. And I think the references here make it clear that this can only be referring to a messiah, a savior of mankind. And this becomes clear not only from this servant song, but as the songs develop, we see this more and more clearly. But notice the things that are here. There's a few, a few specifics that make it, make it clear that it's the Messiah. The Spirit of God will be upon him. In other words, this is a person, not a nation. He will bring justice. The word here is mishpat. And I'm going to get to that in a second here. It's a great word. Justice. To the nations. Uh, And he will do so with gentleness. Contrast that with Cyrus, who came in by the sword. 
And so as these kind of other uses drop off, we're left to wonder, who is this that we're talking about? Again, it's Messiah. Now, the word here, um, justice, mishpat, uh, this is more than just like fairness between you and me, okay? This justice means something bigger and, and broader than that. It really means restoring order to the world, setting things to right so that things are all in right relationship to one another. Um, this past week, I was going to a little coffee hut around the corner, which I, I go to almost every day, and they know me and they know my drink. And uh, so I ordered and I left, and um, I was kind of watching our online banking because, you know, it's Christmas time, and we're also paying college tuition now, so money's just flying out of our account, you know? So I'm watching all the expenditures, and then um, I noticed, hey, wait a minute, I got, I got charged twice for this one. Same, same thing, right back to back, 225, 225, and then they didn't even include my tip, so that was weird. So I was kind of concerned what was happening here. The next time I went through the line, I said, hey, I just wanted to tell you, I got double charged for the drink, but then I was never charged for the tip, so I'm not sure what's going on. And the barista said, oh, I'm sorry that happened. Next time you come, remind me, and I'll give you a free drink. And I thought, that, that's not really the issue. I'm not so concerned about the 225. I'm concerned about, are you double-charging people on accident? Is there something wrong with your system? Is there something wrong with mine? Or do you have an employee that's like, oh, I didn't like that tip. How about I give myself this tip? Or I'm concerned about something bigger than the transaction. I'm, cons- I'm concerned about the system. And that's kind of a picture of mishpat. It's more than just this you know, fairness between you and me. It's rightly ordered world to God himself. And from that, the world rightly ordered to itself. And so this servant savior, this Messiah, as we'll come to understand him, is essentially given to do what Israel can't do or has been unable to do. This coming servant will be the true Israel or the true Israelite, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, what the family line had failed to do, this exceptional descendant will do and achieve on their behalf. And in Matthew 12, the gospel writer actually cites this passage stating that this servant who comes in the power of the Holy Spirit with gentleness to bring justice, mishpat, to all the nations is none other than Jesus Christ. He claims it. The promise is planted here, the promise of salvation, and it's delivered in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. I think it's also interesting that this promise is given in the form of a song. Songs are wonderful in that they're so portable. They carry truth around really well. Well, they carry falsehood around really well too, but they carry it around really well. They're portable. And uh, I think they also allow us to engage our head and our heart. And so it's almost as though God plants in Judah this song of longing to minister to them through these years of waiting as they wait and hope for Messiah to come someday. Uh, A song to sing even in the days of trouble. Uh, I think this song would have served Judah much like uh, sort of the gospel spirituals that we we heard sung in the the, um, sort of the the plantation slaves. A song that kind of helps one go on working and yet waiting. Longing and yet hoping. Suffering and yet singing for salvation. 
So we then turn from kind of this long picture of what God's going to do in the way down future, and he comes back to the present moment, and we see that God's people are commissioned to be witnesses of his grace. Look in chapter 43, and just for the sake of time, we're going to skip some verses here because Isaiah is a big book. Let's just say that. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Down to verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now down to verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and the servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses. There it is again, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Israel's main job coming out of exile and returning home is to worship Yahweh as a witness to the nations that this is the true and living God. That's their job description as refugees who have been released from captivity. And I want to ask you this particular question. Church family, why is the church left here on earth? If our job is to only belong to God and to worship God, why wouldn't he just take us immediately out of the world to be with him? The reality is this. The church is left here for the world and for its sake to be his witnesses in the world. We see it both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The church is not here for itself. It's here for the world. And we have to remember this at times because it can be very easy for the church to get comfortable living kind of a parallel, sanitized existence in a bubble. We're not meant to be that. We're meant to be here for the world and for its needs, which is principally they need the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That is the mission of God and why people are still here and not immediately with the Lord. Finally, we come to this last bit here. God's people are confronted. You're free, but will you follow me is essentially the question. So for eight chapters, we have told of God's sovereignty in the world over the nations, over idols. We've been told about God's trustworthiness, promising, even describing Judah's immediate rescue from captivity and mankind's greater rescue from uh, this servant savior who will rescue us from sin. And with all of that in view, you would think that Judah would just be exiting Babylon with enthusiasm, heading home, ready to serve the Lord. He delivered us. We're his. Let's go. And yet God kind of has a final jab for them. If you think about it, it's, 
It's like a graduate getting ready to leave home and go off into the world, and the parents kind of pull them in and say, let me just tell you a few things. You're free. What are you going to do with that? You're going to live to the hilt of your own pleasure, or are you going to live for the Lord? This is essentially what God asks here. Verse 17, chapter 48. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my, can- my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. Again, on your way out, you're free. I'm taking you in your homeland. What are you going to do with your freedom? You're going to follow me or live unto yourself? The line sort of closes almost with this, that I know you guys are not the best at trusting, but I am trustworthy. Follow me. That's the implication here. Now, if it weren't Christmas, the message would end there, but it's Christmas. So let me just take you one more step further. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament, uh, in Luke, particularly around Christmas time, is this passage of Simeon and Anna, right? These two righteous warriors, so to speak, who go to the temple day and night and pray and worship the Lord. And uh, we're told uh, that Joseph and Mary were getting ready to take Jesus to the temple to be consecrated. And then we pick up on this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for what had been promised in the song that we had just saw here and in these passages. He's waiting for this in his lifetime and assured by the Spirit of God he would see it. The Holy Spirit was on him and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child to Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, may you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. That line that he grabbed right there, that he prayed to the Lord, he pulls from Isaiah from hundreds of years prior. The seed of hope planted in Isaiah and promised was literally delivered at Christmas. You can trust your God. He keeps his promises. He has. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we are not a trustworthy people. Sinners faltering, struggling, But as we look to the scriptures, we find a God who is absolutely trustworthy in your character and attributes, in your actions and in your promises. What you say you would do, you have done. So we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, and we love you. Even in saying that, we recognize you love us even more than we can possibly muster up for you. Thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.